to mask or not to mask? Masks are not theater. Masks are protective. Masks and our future. Quit wearing their mask after they get the vaccine. Give them a reward instead of telling them people don't want to hear it. There's no science behind it. Join Frank Falvey and our roundtable of regulars. Higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones. Harvard's executive director for health and human services, Dr. Natalie Alinos. And from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy. As we the people navigate the unique journey of America toward a more perfect union. Good morning. This is Frank Falvey, your host with A Journey Toward a More Perfect Union. Good morning, uh, Michael. Good morning, Frank. Jeff, how's the State House? The State House is beautiful. How are you doing? Great. Rebecca, you have a, a Aruba? Are, are you vacationing? Well, it's beach day at my son's school, so I thought I would channel that in my virtual background this morning, but it's great to be here uh, joining our regular panelists to have our conversation today. And not Leah, how are your small twins doing? They're good. They're in daycare this morning, so I'm feeling good. Wearing masks at three and able to handle that. And PJ, what a nice opening. It's what we do, Frank. Get to what? the nexus, the nub, crystallizing the topic on the table? Well, the topic on the table is coronavirus. Uh, the future, what will it bring? Uh, what might masking continue for years? Will we lose uh, 100, 200,000 senior citizens uh, every year, like uh, happens with a lot with the flu? What's, what's the future of society? Will uh, parades forever disappear, or will they come back ever stronger? Well, uh, I'm going to chime in on this one right off the bat. I got my second shot on Monday, yay me. And uh, I have to tell you, it is a jovial time. The people who were getting the vaccine were very upbeat. Uh, and I think the staff were reveling in that and enjoying that vicariously, because here's something where the people performing the vaccinations feel like they're really doing a public good. And that said, yes, I enjoyed the wave of invincibility, I'll call it. <laughs> but yeah, so I feel great about it. Uh, I know in the next two weeks, it's going to take full effect. I haven't had, by the way, any notable after effects. It's been great. Um, I got the Moderna vaccine, um, just as a point of reference. And I, for one, still very much believe in the notion of masking because uh, it remains a public health issue. And for the benefit of others that I'm with, as well as, you know, quite frankly, for myself, I'm quite comfortable with it. Well, Pete, I'm so glad you uh, got your vaccine. And if I was Amy. in the same room with you, I'd give you a big hug. <laughs> have you gotten your vaccine, Jeff? I have not. Uh, so you should I'm, not be giving him a big hug. Okay, well, you, <laughs> wait you till you get me. yours. I, that was a rhetorical hug. Um, I, you know, it's funny is, um, you know, I'm approaching sixty, but I seem to have fallen in all of the gaps that uh, <laughs> put me in the group of uh, sixteen plus. So uh, I will not be eligible for a vaccine until April nineteenth. I'm going to join all you youths. 
for the uh, vaccine on April 19th. But I will say I am pre-registered and I'm waiting for the call. And uh, I am so thankful that finally, at long last, we have a pre-registration system in Massachusetts and uh, it relaxes somewhat that Hunger Games mentality that was mm -hmm. out there. And, uh, you know, I just can't believe it took so long to get hey, a Jeff, registration. Sorry. How, how old are you again, my friend? <laughs> 59 and a half. Yeah, you're going to be eligible before April 19th. You will no. be eligible. Yes, 55 no. plus is the 55 next 55 plus is eligible on April 5th. If you have a comorbidity. No, 55 they plus. It? And people who have one higher risk health factor. Of any so age. All right. I got to go, folks. I got to go register. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you know, I actually had to ask this question to, to the DPH folks um, because I was confused. Because if you pre-register... And then you realize that you're actually your eligibility is different than what you initially pre-registered for. There's no way to actually change it. You have to, at least for now, you have to cancel your existing pre-registration and just pre-register, like do a new pre-registration. Well, tell me, I, I, I would assume that the only thing that makes me eligible is being 55 plus. So I won't have to change anything, right? Yeah, you're set. You're uh, set, yeah, Jeff. Your right. age is fine. It's if you realize later that you had, say you were 25 and you had one of the comorbidities and you had not checked those off um, oh. because those are select and they're state by state, which ones count. Yeah. But Frank, to your question about, you know, what the future holds, I think we're talking about different futures, different futures for those in Massachusetts, for those um, in the US, for those in the world. And and unfortunately, we have seen dif differences in the way people are, are even dealing with the risk. And what lies ahead is really uncertain. Unfortunately, with COVID, that has been kind of the mantra from the beginning. We're learning. We're learning as we're doing. Uh, I'm really happy that Senator Becca Rausch is with us today because a point that I am very concerned about is the equity piece. And I know she has been a strong advocate for that. So, you know, for privileged white Massachusetts folks who are working from home, if we're able to continue working from home, we're, you know, with vaccination rates going up, we're relatively safe. But if you're an essential worker and you have a two week period now to find yourself a spot and you're doing it while working three jobs and having kids at home, I'm worried. I'm worried that the inequities um, that lie ahead are going to widen. And I'm worried about the inequities widening beyond health, right? So it's who is getting sick, who's surviving, of course, that we can chart, but who has lost their job and will get back into the workforce? Who has, you know, which women have left the workplace because they're taking care of their kids? You know, all of these broader social issues. I don't know what the future lies ahead. Some days I'm tremendously optimistic that this is a unique time for us to have these conversations. And some days I'm really pessimistic. But Becca, over to you. Are you how are you feeling? Optimistic or pessimistic? Oh, I think I also waver. <laughs> I think I waver based on, uh, at least in part, on what I hear from you and um, and other you know epidemiology and public health experts in the field about you know what's actually going on about um, confusion still lingering about um, the vaccine. I'll tell you, I, I, I found out this, that you have to, you know, cancel your existing pre-registration and get a new pre-registration because somebody asked me about smoking. It's not just active smoking. It's also if you ever were a smoker that puts you into the a higher risk category, presumably, it makes sense, right? Presumably because of the damage that was done to your lungs when you were smoking um, that, that lingers forever, right? So, but yeah, I guess my my sense of things kind of also fluctuates like yours does. Um, but I, I am 
deeply worried about uh, equity and vaccination, um, equity in, in outreach about um, vaccination, about the safety and efficacy of the vaccines, about why it's so important to get it, uh, trusting the system. There's, there's you know, hundreds of years, I see Michael you know, nodding his head. Yes, there's hundreds of years of you know, structural racism and, and built up mistrust of government and the healthcare industry, especially by uh, people of color. That is understandable. And we have to, we have to deal with that in a very real way. Um, and I continue to hear really concerning hesitancy by, by lots of people. And I recently even saw a, um, some data that in fact, that, that some of the outreach to communities of color is working, right? And so, and, and at least in this particular study that I saw, the biggest group of people who had not yet gotten to vaccine acceptance was actually straight white men. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so mm-hmm. that, that was an interesting t- statistic to see. Uh, but I do think here in Massachusetts, we have a real serious equity problem. And, and frankly, I haven't seen um, any meaningful actions and certainly not any transparency or accountability around this by the governor and his administration, which is unfortunate. You know, my colleagues and I filed the Vaccine Equity Act back in February, so almost two months ago now, with a whole slew of provisions in there about appointing a director of vaccine equity and outreach, a mobile vaccination program, data recording and, and reporting, re- recording and reporting, you have to have both, that tracks, you know, particular equity focus information about who's actually getting the vaccine. And so we're starting to see some of that data come out, but we're really missing the vast majority of what's in that bill. Um, and so, you know, we will continue to, to work to advance that, but I, I'm extra concerned. I think it's great that lots of us are going to become eligible real soon. And also I'm extra concerned about that further exacerbating the equity components. Well, you know, the I, American I, Rescue Plan, there is a billion dollars to try to convince people like me that don't want to take the vaccine. So you have a billion dollars to spend and convince people. Well, you know, we gave I, you that billion dollars. Would you have the uh, vaccine, Frank? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> so I want to hear what Michael's got to say, and then I'll, I'll certainly respond to Frank. And, and I, I bet Natalie also has something to say. <laughs> well, you know, I'm concerned um, not as much about the inequities in Massachusetts, but I'm concerned about some of the inequities in other parts of the country. Uh, and race and people of color, I think, is a real concern. It is something that I think nationally we're going to have to be really worried about, especially in some of our states where it is intentional. Uh, I'm in particular like Florida uh, and places like Texas. But my overall concern is about supply first, because as the hesitancy goes away, especially in the black community, what right now I think most of the studies are saying there is very little hesitancy in the black community. What there is is a supply issue because they're because they're not getting the vaccine. And that starts to do one thing, which is frustrate people and then get them angry at the government again because they know or they feel uh, and believe that this is intentional. So I'm really concerned about those places. My second concern is uh, to address Frank's question, the future of where we're going with this. I think masks are here on an individual basis to stay for a while. I know my intent is especially when I'm working some of my consulting jobs that are down in the South, I'm constantly going to be uh, wearing my mask. 
if nothing else, to show the efficacy of having the mask, because I'm going to be surrounded by people who, from the beginning, didn't want to wear the mask, don't believe that the, uh, that the whole idea of uh, COVID-19 was anything uh, uh, to be worried about, et cetera. So with that, uh, uh, Becca, I also want to thank you and your staff. Uh, you had uh, an outreach uh, and I was very pleased to participate that in that uh, about a month and a half ago when you were asking uh, residents, uh, you know, what are your concerns? And my concern was that some of our uh, frontline primary care physicians had no idea what was going on. I see that that had been rectified because of the practice that uh, my primary care physician was in. Suddenly I started getting notices from them saying, okay, we now know what to do. So thank you. And to Jeff, and the other legislative members who, uh, I mean, you didn't have any authority to do it, but you did go to the governor with that issue and he did do something. Michael, let me, sorry, sorry, Becca. No, go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to jump in on the mask piece. Uh, it's really important that we continue wearing masks. And it's really important because kids are not vaccinated and they won't be vaccinated for at least another year, if not longer. And first of all, they will need to keep masks on. And how are we going to model to, you know, a three, a five, a seven-year-old, if all the adults are not wearing masks that, no, you guys have to keep your masks on. Uh, they have to keep their masks on. They'll have to keep them on when we're socializing. They'll have to keep them on in schools. So that's number one. Like we cannot let our guard down because that's letting our kids down. The second piece on the axis, that's really important. Uh, black doctors, black community members in the public health field have been saying, you know, yes, there is hesitancy. You know, Becca, you're right. There are hesitancy, but actually, you know, white Republicans are more hesitant. And using the hesitancy argument that sort of masks the inequities that we're seeing in the vaccine, who's getting it, it's not because of hesitancy. It's because of exactly what Michael said. It's because of access. It's because, you know, I can't spend three hours or 30 hours or 300 hours trying to log on when I do not have the means or I'm working jobs. And the system is so complicated, so broken, and supply has not been prioritized. I mean, I don't know if, if the two of you, Jeff and Becca, can speak to the 20% additional vaccine that was supposed to go to communities um, of color. And, and what is that? I don't even understand where it's going. I, I, I applaud the governor for identifying some you know, communities, that, the communities that he wants to put more effort. But I have heard from doctors treating patients in Chelsea that they're having a hard time getting the vaccine. I mean, Chelsea. Yeah, no, it's true. And and I actually, I just, uh, with, with deep respect, want to push back a little bit on what Michael was saying earlier about um, not being worried about inequity here in Massachusetts, right? As of March 17th in Chelsea, where 68% of the population is Latinx, just 4% of Latinx residents have been fully vaccinated compared with 24% of white residents. So we have some, right, and that's, and it's the same story when you look at the data in Holyoke, Worcester, Springfield, Lawrence, and many other municipalities where we have um, higher populations of people of color and communities that have been hardest hit by the virus. They, they are in fact not getting access and we're seeing it in the data. And that access, you know, I think as, as Natalia points out is it was multifaceted, right? There's a lot of reasons why that hasn't happened. You know, I was, I was pleasantly surprised to see him identify 20 cities. I also in our Vaccine Equity Act that was again filed in early February said, here's 20 cities, you should take the top mobile vaccine program, you know, divide them up regionally and send, you know, vaccine vans or vaccine vehicles to the, you know, the hardest hit communities in all the various regions of the Commonwealth. And then in addition, send some, some 
more vaccine vehicles to the 20 hardest hit communities in the state. And, um, and you know, regardless of where they are uh, geographically and get the vaccines directly into communities so that people have easy access and can go you know, to a place that they trust, a community center, high school, wherever, and, um, you know, and, and have the vaccine vehicle right there in the parking lot and get your vaccine. And that, you know, that wasn't my idea. <laughs> That's the idea that comes from Natalia's colleagues in, in you know, public health and epidemiology. Um, we just put it into the bill and, and filed that thing. Uh, so we, we have a ton of work. You know, the question about what's going on with the 20% that's supposed to go to those 20 communities? Yeah, it's a great question. I have yet to hear an answer from the administration. Um, and our colleagues who are on the COVID Oversight Committee continue to press for that. And we're still not getting straight answers from the administration. So I, I share the frustration about the lack of transparency and accountability about how this, uh, how this vaccine rollout has been going. Uh, let me clarify. Uh, you know, I... Again, I, and and I, I apologize to our listeners if I came across as I'm not concerned about the inequities in Massachusetts. That's not because that's not accurate in terms of my head and where I am. Yes, we do have in, uh, inequities in Massachusetts. My comparison, though, is in those places where, for example, Becca, when you were talking about Chelsea and the Latinx community in terms of 4% versus 24, I'm talking about places, for example, in Florida, where it's 4% versus 54%, or in Texas, where it's 3% versus 60% in terms of 3% for uh, uh, the communities of color, 60% for those communities surrounding them that are, you know, that are predominantly right. So, no, I don't, you know, I'm, I may have been misinterpreted there, but no, I am quite concerned about Massachusetts, but I think we're addressing it in a much more dynamic and vigorous way. My concern is, is in those places where they don't have people like you or our legislature or the community who are speaking up and it's and their concerns are being addressed. And nationally, those are happening in many more places than there are in Massachusetts. So I just yeah, want to clarify. I, I appreciate that clarification. I also, I also want to to say, you know, the fact that we're doing like slightly better than the abysmally bad inequity in other places <laughs> doesn't actually mean that we're doing a good job addressing right. equity in agree. healthcare here. So, you know, so yeah, it's worse in other places. But, you know, somebody like I was talking about elections uh, and access to vote. I know it's not our main topic of conversation, but somebody, um, due respect to Georgia, somebody said to me, well, we're not as bad as Georgia. And I thought, mm. <laughs> sure that's exactly the way we want to be thinking about how we make sure that that voters in Massachusetts are enfranchised, right? Are we doing the absolute best that we can do? And and the answer, frankly, in both questions has to be no. And and you can see it readily when you look at the data. Yeah. Um, you know, and, yeah. and that's well, that's really concerning. Let me get down to nuts and bolts. I understand before the legislature there's a bill on nursing homes. And the bill is to require more spacing and less patients in a home. I tend to feel that you've already eliminated a lot of good nursing homes uh, over the years that were functioning and had a purpose. They were low cost. They may have not have been upscale or the best places in the world, but they served a purpose. And to further restrict how nursing homes uh, can operate is only going to raise the expenses of nursing homes and eliminate a part of the uh, population. The future of nursing homes, I think, will be one of the 
interesting futures after the coronavirus. But I am, I would love to read this bill, but I am particularly opposed to further restricting and raising the cost, uh, practical cost of nursing homes. Well, Frank, first of all, let me, uh, let me point out to you, uh, bills, there are over 7,000 bills that are filed in the legislature. Is it up to 7,000? I thought we were just over 6,000. We're up to 7,000 now? We'll we'll be there. Uh, And (laughs) uh, bills are really, I hate to use the phrase, but they're conversation starters. And they're to get people uh, talking about ideas. And uh, I know one one of the bills that we did last year was to form a commission to study the future of nursing homes in Massachusetts. And that uh, commission is is underway doing some work to make recommendations on some changes. So I would not get alarmed about that bill at this particular moment. What I would suggest is you get on to the masslegislature.gov site and list that bill as one that you want to follow in in the progress. And you'll see that it will get a public hearing and you'll hear people on all sides of the issue uh, weighing in on that. So uh, don't don't be worried about one bill out of uh, out of seven thousand because uh, I have yet to see a bill that has gone into the um, the queue and come out looking exactly like it did the day it was filed. They, there's there's uh, dramatic changes that take place. But I do want to um, just go back to uh, first of all your earlier question and on the masks. And I agree, agree wholeheartedly with everyone else on the call that uh, you know we're going to be wearing them. Uh, for some time. Some say I look better in a mask, so, uh, you know, it's not going to offend me. But uh, in any event, I think we'll be doing that. But I really am intrigued by your comment that even if we paid you a billion dollars, you wouldn't have the vaccine. And I'd love to understand what your hesitancy and what your reluctance is and uh, have a conversation about that unforeseen consequences. I am not convinced that early medicine that comes out doesn't, in the long run, have unforeseen consequences. And at some point, society is going to force me force me to have the vaccine because they're not going to allow me maybe to play bridge. If bridge reopens, I think bridge is probably a, a game that is probably going to disappear because of the coronavirus. But getting on an airline, if I want to fly and see my great-grandchildren in Florida, society is probably not going to let me have the freedom not to get the virus. And that's one of the things that I see in the future. And if we're talking about the future, let me also say that I think the, the great American rescue plan in the Trump tax cut and the Trump plan are are just present-day bailouts to put money in the economy. And in 2022, in the June or July of 2022, that money, I think, is basically going to be, have been spent. In that point, I'm worried about the economy. I'm worried about what the future is going to bring. And if Biden is talking about another $3 trillion, forget it. The, the debt, if it raise, rises percentage-wise, which it will do. Interest rates will go up to some degree. Um, I don't know. We're already a credit nation. China is a debit nation. 
the coronavirus uh, and, and economically how we're handling it and practically, I think could be our downfall. Frank, can I jump in on your personal note? And I'm happy to speak offline uh, and you should be speaking to your doctor and, and others to talk about it. But, and I don't mean to put Do- you on the spot. Doctor, and Natalie, let me interrupt. For 50 years, I went to the University of Mass Hospital and that had great medical advice and, and care. I'm part of a retirement system that has United Healthcare Advantage Plan, which the University of Mass and United Healthcare can't agree on. After 50 years, I can't go to the University of Mass, even though I have Advantage Plan Medicare for any treatment. So I have been eliminated from that's a, good. That's unacceptable. That's unacceptable, Frank. And I'm I'm really sorry that this country makes it so difficult for people to have a doctor. But let me go back to your point about the long-term consequences. I believe the vaccine is safe. I will give it to my kids when it's available for them. I will take it. Uh, but let's take that you're right that you know 20 years down the line we find that there were some unintended consequences. I'm sorry to be really crass, but you don't you likely will not live for another 20 years, but this virus can kill you in months, in weeks. And so I worry that people of your age, and I don't mean to be sort of, you know, call you out on it, but your trade-off, the benefits and the risks, you face such a huge risk if you were to get on a plane and get sick. Like your body, we, we know the data that if you're over a certain age, you're so likely to, to, to die from this. And I wouldn't want to lose you, Frank. I really, really enjoy the show. I don't, you know, so I don't know if your kids or others are saying this to you, but you know, you don't need to worry about the long-term consequences 20 years down the line. Like you don't, you need to worry about what will happen in the next 20 days um, when we're seeing an increase. So I don't know if there's a way for me to, you know, to encourage you. I, I mean, there, if you were worried about the immediate side of it, like you get the shot and something happens on the spot, that would be different, but you said long-term. So can I, can I push you? Natalia, maybe you could also talk about the testing process and the efficacy and, and the approval things that, that all of these vaccines have needed to go through in yeah. order to even be available to the public. Yeah, I mean, so some people worry that we rushed, right? I've heard that term, but we haven't rushed. The investment that went into this vaccine. So the mRNA technology has been in the makings for many, many years. Uh, and also the fact that we had scientists from across the globe the government pouring in so much money, we just went faster because we had significantly more investments. Um, I believe not only that the studies were done right, but now we have vaccinated hundreds of millions of people globally and many people within your age group across the globe. And nobody who has been vaccinated has died from COVID. There have been, you know, we're constantly recording side effects. And, you know, of course, we've only been recording for the time period that we have. So I, we don't have side effects 20 years down the line. But we know that taking medicine or other treatments that we constantly take, you know, the medicine that you take is is more invasive. So in some ways, thinking about this as, as safe is really important. So I feel confident in the science. I feel confident in the numbers that we are seeing. I feel confident that countries, you know, like Israel that have vaccinated so many of the population are not seeing suddenly, you know, side effects. So I have that confidence, but I know that this is a personal decision and I respect it. And I think that most people who are worried are worried and want to have more conversations and many people come around. So that's why I'm urging you to have more conversations, Frank. Uh, The governor and society 
Jeff mentioned, I don't know how many people over 75 are vaccinated. I don't know what the percentage now is, 65. But what you've done is you haven't vaccinated all those people. And, and as Jeff has pointed out, you've added more people than this vaccination's for. So you've already said to old people, hey, you're not important, forget it. We're moving up teachers. When, when teachers aren't primary people that need to get the vaccine you know frank but uh let me jump in here too because i'm uh, i'm diametrically opposed to you know your characterization that there is a singular line and people are jumping ahead in the line the issues are much more complicated than that and i know you and i have talked about this offline too with regard to why teachers why first responders and and also uh you know we need to be more attuned to the elderly because they are the ones who have died in greater percentages uh, since the uh, since the COVID-19 started. As a society, you're right, we have a public good and a public responsibility. And as a society, we have a very complex set of elements, our, our schools, our economy, our first responders, and people who are working in hospitals. And what we have to do as a society is to make sure that we can address all of those at once, because if you do one at a time, then everything in terms of the way our society works gets held up. So I would disagree, Frank, that you know that there's a singular line and that people are jumping ahead. I think there are multiple lines, and what we have to do is prioritize, okay, which ones of those lines that we're going to try to work our way through uh, and try to do that uh, very efficiently. So we've got first responders, we've got teachers because we want to open the schools, we've got the elderly because they're uh, most at risk, we've got people with comorbidities, and you know, and those people are also at risk. So we're doing all of those at the same time. It's not just one at a time. The second piece that I think is very important is that this pandemic has been so destructive in terms of not only the death toll, but also with regard to its impact on the economy, its impact on all of our social structures, that in order to get back to some relevancy in terms of normal, we've got to be able to, again, take a, uh, take a very complex system and address all these needs at once. So uh, I can understand your individual concern, and I would agree with the, uh, uh, with the experts in the room, uh, you know, Dr., uh, Dr. Lenos and her colleagues. I say that Again, putting her back in her real world, a <laughs> uh, real world role. Uh, again, a COVID expert here, but those folks know what they're talking about. Again, you're not looking at something that was created overnight. I've said this before on this program. We were extremely lucky. Preparation, prior preparation, prevents whatever the rest of that is. And in this case, we had ten years plus of prior preparation that suddenly met the need. And so it's not that this whole COVID vaccine was created overnight. We had been studying this for years and years and decades. And suddenly we found the right solution at the right time based on those years of work. So I would be less concerned, Frank, that there are long-term consequences that have not at least been studied at this point. So. And Michael, Again, have you been vaccinated? I know you are a black older man. So do you want to uh, share your story? Yes. As a matter of fact, my story is one of just pure tenacity. Yes, I was vaccinated. 
I also will reveal to our audience and stuff, I was diagnosed back in November with prostate cancer. And as a result of that, when the vaccine came out, my doctors told me, as soon as you're able, go ahead and get the vaccine. I was not in the first group that was uh, first responders. I would have been in the second group. And two weeks before my opportunity to open up came, my daughter, who had been with me to some preliminary surgery before treatment, was at my house and she was showing me because I didn't know how to go and do the registration. She was showing me how to do it. And in doing so, she found an opening. She found a, an appointment, but it was for first responders. And I will reveal this to our audience that what happened from that point on was just pure tenacity. Because once she made the appointment, uh, it was over at the uh, Gillette Stadium. I just said, look, we're going. Because it was like within an hour of her making the appointment. I said, yeah, we're, go we're just going to do it. So I went over there. Uh, I had had surgery that morning and literally talked my way into getting the vaccine. I had, uh, uh, I had my IV patch that was on. I had my, uh, my, uh, uh, my ID from the uh, hospital for that day. And I told the people because uh, once we got to the point where they said, okay, let me see your first responder license or badge or whatever. I told them I'm not a first responder. And they said, what? And I go, no, I'm not a first responder. I said, but my doctor told me to come over here and do whatever I could as soon as I could. And I showed them the, you know, the props that I had on me at the time. And uh, the supervisor said, Hey, look, you know what guy, I'm not going to stop you. I think being black and an elderly guy, elderly guy at the time probably helped me. They sent me upstairs. I got vaccinated uh, two weeks before I was supposed to register and stuff. But again, that's because I was so anxious and sincerely wanted to get the vaccine. I would have been, you know, again, so it was only two weeks ahead of the uh, uh, ahead of schedule. But that's how committed I was. And so, yes, now I've had both of my shots. They were Moderna. Uh, I had a little bit of side effects and stuff, but I'm great now and fine and also feel like Pete, somewhat relieved at this point. I'd like to also uh, chime in with something interesting that I'm hearing sort of as a larger arc here. This is a very, very dynamic project, this notion of vaccinating an entire country. It means establishing 20,000 sites with easily twice as many workers. Imagine starting a corporation like that, putting it into business, growing it, and then having to hopefully put it back out of business all within the course of a single year. <laughs> it's only the government can do that. Now, here's another interesting thing to consider. Urgency begets chaos. This is going to have more than normal amounts of chaos associated with it, just per force of its extreme urgency for everyone. You know, it's going about as well as it can when you hear complaints on both sides of the bell curve. Let me chime in with some of the statistics to alleviate some of the concern expressed this morning. So the... Uh, Individuals in the population in Massachusetts that are 75 plus, that makes up 7% of the population in Massachusetts. And with that age group, 70, 75 plus, we have vaccinated 75% of those people already. And these are the statistics as of Monday night. And then the next age group is 65 to 74, and that's 10% of our population or 682,000 people. We've done about 65% of those people. And then if you go up to the 50 to 64 age group, that's 1.4 million people. We've only done one third of that population. 
So we have certainly targeted the, the older group and we just uh, got word, you know, so we're sending folks out to those uh, folks who can't make it to a, a, a center or a clinic. There's a homebound uh, group that's going out and uh, targeting those individuals. So there is certainly an effort to vaccinate our most uh, vulnerable population in that age group. And the hope is that we will use this level of tenacity and targeting to all vulnerable populations to make sure that those who truly need it uh, will get it uh, before anyone else. And and I think these statistics uh, are, are telling. Uh, I'll just I'll just point out some of the uh, so uh, Jeff. Before I do that, do you want to tell everybody where you're finding those statistics? Are those from the DPH site? Every night we get an email from the Department of Public Health uh, with a dashboard that gives us uh, the most up to date information. And uh, you know, uh, I can't say I look forward to reading them every night, but uh, you know, because it's it's a it's a daunting task, but. Having this information readily at hand, I think, is is extremely helpful and uh, clears up some uh, misconceptions about what's going on in Massachusetts. And and the data that that Jeff is is sort of reciting back for all our listeners today is also available publicly on DPH's website, that dashboard. We, we, in the legislature, we get it by email and some other useful information that we try to disseminate to our constituents. But that data is all, the data they have is publicly available. Um, And you can get it on the DPH website, um, I think, by going to uh, mass.gov slash COVID-19. But uh, I want to you know, I want to go back to what uh, Michael was saying about how he managed to get a, a vaccine, right? This is the, this is something that Jeff and I certainly have heard about. I, I can't even count, <laughs> but Jeff can't count either. I can see by his facial expression right now, he also can't count, you know, just how many people we've heard from over the last, well, especially since the vaccine has even come onto the scene, um, but throughout the course of this pandemic, and, and especially since uh, vaccination has become available even to some, um, about the frustrations, even, even newly created mental health problems with regard that have, have uh, kind of generated because of the stress of trying to navigate the system and figure out when you can get which is part of why Jeff and I and and many others in the legislature and members of our federal delegation were pushing so hard for a pre-registration site because you go on, you enter your information. I've done it. It takes less than a minute or maybe a minute, right? It's really quick. It's really easy. You enter your information, you click submit and you're done. And once a week I get a text message that says you're still registered to, you know, to get your vaccine. It's still not your time. Okay, great. Thanks. Now I know it's like waiting in the, you know, the hold music when you're waiting on the phone. Maybe I'm dating myself. You know, and, and Becca, uh, <laughs> one thing about that pre-registration in, in a lesson that I learned this morning from you, I made a mistake in my pre-registration not understanding that I was eligible. And if we didn't have the pre-registration thing, I would have waited till April 19th. But because right. of this system, I'm going to get a notice earlier. And, uh, you know, that's another benefit for this system. Yeah, and, and it's it's, you know, it was something that, that we have been, you know, pushing and pushing and pushing and advocating for for months now. Um, and, you know, and for whatever reason, the administration didn't do it. And then in the first covert oversight hearing, it came to light that, in fact, they could have, you know, procured a pre-registration system right at the very beginning and they just chose not to. Um, and, you know, think of all the multiple millions of dollars that would have been saved, let alone all of the 
time and energy and stress and all the rest of it if we just had a pre-registration system from the beginning, uh, right? So, you know, the pre-registration system, just for, to make sure all our listeners know, works only for the mass vaccination sites. And, um, and in fact, you can no longer make an appointment by yourself, right? You can't go into the system and, and make an appointment at a mass vaccination location anymore. You can make appointments at CVS or Walgreens, or um, if you have a regional collaborative that's delivering vaccines in your area, you can make an appointment there, but you can no longer yourself go and make an appointment at a mass vax site because all of those now are going through the um, pre-registration system, just pulling people out as, a, as they become eligible and offering vaccine appointments. But all this information is available on my website, BeccaRauschMA.com slash COVID vaccine. You can get all that information. You can reach out to me or I'm going to offer Jeff too. I'm sure that it's true for him. Um, <laughs> right? You can reach out to Ed, to both of us. I and mean, if you're listening and you're not one of our constituents, you can reach out to your legislator and get some information that way. But, you know, please do do sign up when it's your turn, get the shot, you know, and, and we started this conversation with a question about whether we're going to be able to get back to parades and festivals in town and people really, you know, coming out and engaging in community. That's what, that's what makes our towns and cities feel like home, right? Small businesses, our, uh, you know, our main streets, our mom and pop shops are coming together as, as communities together, as, as people just engaging with each other as humans and we will not be able to get to any semblance of doing that again unless people get vaccinated. It's just, it's just that simple, right? And, and uh, you know, I'm not the epidemiology expert here. We, we've got Natalia sitting right here. I'm sure she's going to say the same thing, but this is absolutely critical. And I've been saying this for, for as long as I can remember now. We are, our local economies are never going to get back to any sort of semblance of, you know, of positivity until consumers both feel and actually are safe going out and engaging as consumers. And we're not going to get there unless we reach herd immunity with vaccination, um, right? And uh, Natalia, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's somewhere between 80 and 85% of people getting vaccinated. We surely are not going to get there at any point in the near future because we don't have vaccines yet that are approved for children, right? And kids make up 25% of the population in the Commonwealth. So, you know, we got we to gotta get to that before we even think about being able to, uh, you know, to get back to some kind of quote unquote new normal. And yeah, that's Becca, why it's so important for us to do all this together, right? And keep wearing masks and be diligent. I, I'm tired too, but we got to keep doing this or we're never going to get there. That Leah, as an epidemiologist, how are we using current information from a nuts and point, point of view? Uh, practically, what's happening that with that information and how are you using it? So there's, there's a few things that we're looking at. For me personally, because I'm interested in the inequities, we're looking at the data around who is getting vaccinated, who is being falling behind, who is kind of invisible. You know, that is really important data. But to Becca's point, you know, we do want herd immunity, but even without herd immunity, what we're trying to do is defang this disease, right? So if we vaccinate everyone who's at risk at either going to the hospital or dying from this, it's probably... I'm, I mean, I'm not going to say it's okay, but it's that's a different strategy. A different strategy is to make sure that we're not risking people's lives. And then like other diseases that are going to be endemic, like it exists, but have less of an impact on younger, healthier people, we can still start to get back to normal because we're not scared about overwhelming our hospitals again or our ICU beds. You know, that, do you, do you remember a year ago when we, we had doctors in tears saying, 
I am seeing patients dying. I cannot do anything. I'm trying to triage between who gets treatment, who doesn't. We do not want to go back there. So the vaccination is both to try and get to herd immunity, but also to defang, you know, COVID that so that if somebody gets it, but they're in that lower priority group that we think would not end up in the hospital, um, you know, some people will. You don't know if you're going to be that person. So again, get the vaccine. Um, sorry, Frank, go ahead. More of my question is, who are you sending this information out to people? Are you writing uh, reports to government yes. officials? So the Department of Public Health could, has most of the data. Then there's academics like myself and others who are looking at the data and doing some analyses, for example, to say where are the inequities, you know, by race, ethnicity, by employment status, you know, things like that. And then a lot is going back out to the public through the media. So I do interviews, a lot of the you know, other epidemiologists do interviews. And then through the legislators, you know, we talk to people like Becca and Jeff and, and when they have questions, that's, that's the way that it's happening. But the tracking is happening by our Department of Public Health. Is that correct, Becca? Well, it's a it's a joint effort, right? And and the uh, you know there's the work that's on the ground to actually enter the data in the first place, right? That's happening at the vaccination locations and uh, you know all throughout the Commonwealth. But yeah, the the central repository of all the um, data is the Department of Public Health. And again, those are the all those statistics that we do have. Um, and there's a, a fair amount of critique, particularly within the public health. Um, expert community, especially those uh, like Natalia who are focused on equity, um, that we're not actually capturing the data, the full spectrum of data that we need, which is also a part of this Vaccine Equity Act that um, I and colleagues filed in uh, early February. But um, the data that we do have is available to anybody who wants to see it on the, de on the Department of Public Health's uh, COVID website. If I could throw another variable here that we haven't, haven't talked about yet. And that is the juxtaposition of the race that we're in, because it's not just trying to stop the uh, sort of mainstream COVID-19, but we've got these variants now that are more virulent. Some of them are even uh, uh, attack children. Uh, the most recent one, the one from the uh, UK, which uh, has, uh, uh, they found out that uh, these things are being spread in the schools. Um, that children are very vulnerable and that children can not only contract the virus, but also become super spreaders. So we're also trying to vaccinate, aren't we, Natalia, uh, as quickly as we can to try to stem the impact of some of these variants. I mean, can you speak exactly. to that? <laughs> yeah, so, so mutations happen. That's a natural thing of viruses, right? But they happen when you're transmitting. So if you if you shut down the transmission, you're also slowing down the mutations. Um, so that is really key in the vaccination policy to be vaccinating people, especially I think essential workers and people who are actually transmitting more because they're out. You know, Frank, for example, if you're not vaccinated but you're staying home, you're also not risking, you know, sharing it and mutating. But if you're if you're a grocery worker, an MTA worker, a teacher, um, and you're exposed to a lot of people at, at the same time that your higher rate, you know, mutations are happening while you're transmitting. So vaccination is important. But isn't the greatest risk probably in a foreign undeveloped country that doesn't have uh, Oh, much certainly. And, certainly. And, and, I mean, that's, that's got to be the greatest risk 
uh, for the world and also for the United States. And Frank, I'm glad you brought it up because a lot of public health experts have now been calling that this kind of vaccine nationalism is a risk to the United States. You know, I've been saying it since the beginning, but it's hard. It's hard to get around this mentality of like, I need to vaccinate my people to, I also need to make sure that the rest of the world has the vaccine, otherwise my people will not be safe. And it's it's a trade-off that I think politicians are struggling with, but a lot of governments, you know, in Norway and, and other places have said, you know, a certain percentage of the vaccines that they give their people, they will donate to other countries. The WHO has been ringing the alarm for a long time. They don't even have enough vaccines to vaccinate essential healthcare workers. If we see healthcare systems across the world collapse because of COVID, we are all in trouble, not only because of COVID, but because of you know other pandemics and other emergencies. So we really cannot afford to lose the few doctors and nurses in South Africa. We cannot afford to lose. I mean, they cannot afford it, but the globe cannot afford it. And I have heard stories now of a lot of frontline healthcare workers dying in countries because they do not have access to the vaccine yet. And yet I, you know, who work from home may get the vaccine before them. And I don't know how, how to say, you know, please pass it along. Like I can wait till May or even June, as long as, you know, my workplace doesn't force me back. And that's where I think it's tricky. I think the US is using the economic, like we want to get our economies back open and therefore we need to vaccinate all our Americans, but, but it's a trade-off that we cannot um, afford. We need to not have this vaccine nationalism. And that's why I think we've got to remember where this vaccination came from. If, if Either if it came from a China lab or it came from the open market with bats, that's just going to prove your point. Well, so, so we don't know exactly where it came from, and I don't even know that it was from China or where it was from, but zoonotic diseases, this idea that our our interaction with the environment, that infectious diseases are happening. Ebola was one. COVID is one that we do need to be thinking about the environment. We haven't talked about climate change or our environmental policies. That's true, because the more and more we encroach into, you know, habitats um, because of, you know, economic factors or not a concern for the environment, we are putting ourselves at risk. So I don't want to get into kind of the where did it come from? If it came from California or... or That's not my point. My point yeah. is there's places around the world that the next danger could come from. Yeah. So propping up public health systems everywhere is good for all of us. Agree, Frank. This is why just to, to kind of jump off that, um, and and uplift that uh, sentiment from from Natalia. You know, this is why I and and so many of our colleagues in the in the state legislature here in Massachusetts are working so hard to fight for local health. You know, our local health systems have been really gutted over the last ten years, in particular, but even longer than that. Um, and we're we're literally living through the ramifications of those decisions um, now because. Uh, because we 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 have a lot of infrastructure to build, um, specifically on infectious disease prevention. Um, and I'm also I'm really excited uh, this session to serve as the Senate Chair of the Joint Committee on the Environment, Natural Resources, and Agriculture. Jeff is the House Chair of the Joint Committee on Telecommunications, Utilities, and Energy. So actually, the two of us are going to be doing a lot of work this session. Um, specifically on, you know, on climate and the environment, a lot of the things that Natalie was just mentioning, uh, because it is all interconnected, right? Infrastructure, public health, the environment, climate, all, all of it, all of these systems um, impact our daily lives and our ability to live 
healthy lives together in community. And we have to be able to look at all of these systems cohesively and holistically in order to really make the positive changes that we need so that our we can so we can continue living like this. Right? I mean not like this in this moment, but you know, in the before times. Now Leah, do you have any information on refugee camps overseas that are tent camps and very crowded on how this coronavirus is spreading if it is? Yeah, so um, as some of the listeners know, I'm I'm from Greece. So in Greece, we have a huge refugee situation um, and it hasn't been great. Um, the, the plus side is that a lot of the refugee communities are, are slightly younger. So you don't have, uh, you know, people over the age of 75 in refugee camps. Mostly it's, it's young, um, healthier kind of baseline people. So that's been helpful. But a lot of countries have been cracking down in ways that are also inappropriate. And, and as someone who works on human rights, it's important to stress that, you know, you don't police problems. So what we have seen is militarization of, of police kind of getting around the camps and basically saying you're not allowed to leave. Um, because they recognize that these people are living in conditions that could spread the disease, but rather than ameliorating those conditions, you kind of clamp down and, and put in place what I would consider human rights uh, violations. You know, an interesting analogy is what's happening in uh, prisons and jails across the U.S. There has been a call from the public health community for decarceration, and you know, in Massachusetts, actually, that was one thing that we did prioritize people, both um, you know, people who are incarcerated and correctional uh, facility workers to get the vaccine first. So yes, in any condition where you can't follow public health advice to isolate, to wash your hands, to, you know, you're going to have an increase and we have seen an increase, but the data, I wouldn't trust the data because we're not doing routine screening of, of refugees in many parts of the world. But when there's an outbreak, there's an outbreak and that's when you catch it. And then they sort of close down and don't allow anyone from the camp to leave. And so that's where the human rights concerns come in. Uh, but that's, I think probably Frank, a conversation for a future, um, a future session on, on sort of the global uh, dynamics and what we're seeing and, health and human rights and environment. Looking at it more locally, um, I want to, again, uh, return to where I started. Um, uh, my experience uh, was a very good one. I went to a CVS pharmacy. Now, I fully support the notion of the mass vaccine sites, what they're doing with pre-registration, all of that, ironing out those things. And I've heard reports from other people that they've gotten the vaccine at a mass site, enjoyed the experience, whisked their way right through it pretty crisply. So week by week, things are getting better and better. I also found it fascinating to look at how there is this cooperation between the public and private sector. Uh, and both Walgreens and CVS have stepped up to do all that they can to participate fully and, and contribute to the public good. I went on the CVS website, registered pretty quickly. It was about a two minute process. I didn't spend hours and hours weeks ago trying to find something, call it luck, whatever. But it was the same for myself, the same for my wife. We were uh, vaccinated. And I like to say that, yes, I got shot. I took one right in the apothecary. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, it, was, it was a good experience. And, so, uh, and then the third thing is, of course, the health system. Uh, I'm part of uh, Beth Israel. And they notified me by email that they had clinics, they were doing this. I was on a list that they had formed from their own database. 
So there are three ways to find your way to the vaccine, either going to the government website, uh, working with your healthcare provider who will be proactive about trying to do something for you. Uh, and then there is, of course, um, the uh, large chains, CVS, Walgreens, and others around the country who are doing all they can uh, to address the issue. And what that leaves us with is people who don't have health care, people who don't have internet, uh, people who are left out of the system. And uh, none of us have easy answers for that, save that uh, finding a way to get to the vac get the vaccine to those homes and those locations is is the outlier challenge, and I hope that we address it as well. So if you'd like to weigh in on today's topic, we would love to hear from you. You can write us at info at franklin.tv. That's info at franklin.tv. Uh, thank you, Becca, for being with us today. For Natalie Alinos, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, for Jeff Roy, Frank and I are saying goodbye for now. This is Franklin Public Radio.